Okay, today is April the 12th, 2011. Okay, uh, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. Oh, before we begin, we have some special visitors with us. Taylor Williams and his wife, um, is it uh, Ma Ma Marilyn? Marilyn is visiting from San Antonio. Will y'all stand up so we can see him? Just raise your hand, stand up, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Taylor was on the ordination committee when I was ordained uh, nearly 20 years ago and they treated us to dinner last night Just we had a very good time okay let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and during that time we have the opportunity to name privately to God any unconfessed sins that Ensure the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Another day that we can depend on your faithfulness, your logistical grace, complete and total support system. We thank you that we can be here and understand your word. And it doesn't depend on our intellect, our IQ. It depends on your grace, as does everything else. So we thank you for this opportunity to be here. Pray that you'll help us to focus and concentrate. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We've been in John chapter 5, verse 28 through 29 for the last two Bible classes. I think this is very important that we understand that verse, that we are able to give a reason why this is not what most people expect it to be. I guess I could turn to it. Uh, I'll show it to you in a moment, but I've got something on the screen I'm going to show you that I think um, is illustrating how prevalent the idea is that there is just one last judgment on the very last day, and everyone is going to be evaluated at that time, and they're going to be evaluated as to whether they were good or whether they were bad. Now, this is the overwhelming you could say, theological worldview of most people in the world. And a song came to me before I left tonight, and I had time to get it on the PowerPoint here. It's called The Very Last Day. It's by Peter, Paul, and Mary. Now, I was a big fan of Peter, Paul, and Mary back in the 60s. In fact, they had a lot to do with me getting uh, interested in learning how to play the guitar. I love folk music. <clears throat> Their songs, they had a great harmony, uh, a very special group. And I remember this song. In fact, I was going to play it to you, but I don't think I will. Maybe you've heard it before. And I started thinking about the words to it. And I didn't know all the words, so I went online and I found the lyrics to this song. And it has a lot to do with what I'm talking about with regards to what people think of when they think of what's going to happen at the end of time. What's going to happen in, to their life? I mean, 
a lot of people are still struggling with the idea, am I going to heaven or am I going to hell? And what's going to take place? What is the, the judgment that's going to take place? It's going to be on the very last day, and surely it will be how good I am as opposed to how bad I am. Now, here's the word. Everybody's going to pray on the very last day. Oh, when they hear that bell or ring the world away, everybody's going to pray to the heavens on the judgment day. Notice that judgment day is singular on the very last day. That goes right along with the mindset that people have. And then the first, uh, the first verse says, that was the chorus, by the way. It says, well, you can sing about the great King David and you can preach about the wisdom of Saul. But the judgment fault, see that singular? The judgment falls on all mankind when the trumpet sounds the call. All equal and the same, when the Lord, He calls your name, get ready, brother, for that day. Now, what do you suppose they mean when they say, get ready, brother, for that day? They're thinking, you better watch your P's and Q's. You better walk the straight and narrow. There's going to be a judgment day. You better get ready for it. And then they went back to the course. Now, here's the next, uh, the next verse. It says, well, one day soon all men will stand. His word will be heeded in all the land. Men shall know and men shall see. We all are, we all are brothers and we all are free. Mankind was made of clay, each of us in the very same way. Get ready, brother, for that day. Same thinking along those lines. I'm not sure when they, when they say that... <coughs> One day soon we will stand. There's one in here about the equal. I maybe I hadn't got to it yet. The last verse. Oh, well, the law is given and the law is known. A tale is told and the seed is sown. From the dust we came and the dust will go. You know, the Lord once told us so. Each brother take his hand. Heed the meaning of the Lord's command. Get ready, brother, for that day. That's exactly what most of humanity is doing with regards to getting ready for what comes next. Just about any rational person knows that this life is very temporary and something is going to happen when it's over. Now, there's a lot of people who think that, well, when you die, you just cease to exist. But I don't think that's very prevalent. I know there are those who subscribe to that. But for the most part, people know that this life has to have some meaning. And after it's going to be over, most people uh, that don't know the Word of God think, well, there's going to be that day and we better get ready for it. Now, what I'd like for you to do is turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5 and verse 28. John chapter 5 and verse 28. Okay, or you can look up here on the board. This is the... the Two verses that we've been dealing with. 
And this is a very real attack, or at least a potential attack, on the very foundation of Christianity and what we believe. And there are a lot of religions, there are a lot of denominations that subscribe to this same idea that there is only one judgment out in the future and it's going to be judged according to whether you are good or bad. And so they could go to this verse, these two verses, to substantiate that. Now, if that happened, if somebody said, well, I better really watch what I'm doing. I, I found out that I have cancer. I don't have long to live, so I really better get ready for that day. And you might say, well, well what do you mean getting ready for that day? Well, I, I, you know, I hadn't lived the way I really should have. And I've been guilty of a lot of things, and I've got to do a lot better because I want to wind up on the good, in the good place. Something I want to see the man upstairs or whatever they may say. And if you were talking to some very legalistic religious people and they knew about these verses, they would go to these verses to substantiate that false idea. So let's look at it, John 5, 28 through 29. Do not marvel at this. This is Christ himself speaking. For the hour is coming. Some translations say the time rather than the hour. The time or the hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice. Now we know that is true. But here is the twist. Here is the deception. They take it to mean that the hour or the time is one time and everybody is going to hear his voice at the same time. That's, they, that's what they read into this verse. But there can be a time, there can be an hour where everyone hears the, the voice, but it's not the same time and it's not the same hour. And we find as we compare Scripture with Scripture that that is the case. God is not going to deliberate and sort everything out and decide what He's going to do one time yet in the future. For we know that there is a judgment seat of Christ in which believers are going to be evaluated, or at least their works are. And there is yet a time for unbelievers where they're going to be resurrected. They're going to stand before Jesus Christ at the great white throne. And we know that that's going to be at least a thousand and seven years apart in time frame. We also know that Old Testament believers are going to receive their resurrection bodies at the second advent. And there, it appears that there might be some kind of evaluation for them. And so these happen at different times at different places. So the reason they think that it's all at one time is because they don't have the benefit of the knowledge of doctrine that you do. And God holds us responsible when you get to a point where people are coming across with that kind of viewpoint. You can either just say, well, you know, whatever. Or you can say, well, the Bible talks about more than one resurrection. It talks about more than one judgment. There's going to be more than one judgment, and it's going to be quite different. In which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice. And, of course, we know that's true, but it's not all at the same time. Verse 29. And shall come forth those who did the good deeds. It's unfortunate that they have deeds. It's in italics in, in the New American Standard Version. Because... The, it goes along with the thinking of what people have read into who are not grace-oriented. They don't understand the cross. They're not, they're not saved. And so they're working in order to make sure that they're going to be in the resurrection of life. But all it means is 
those who did the good. Now you can't, some say, well, the good is believing in Christ. The only problem is that good is plural. But the word there is agathos in the Greek, and it means intrinsic value. If you remember what I said last time, this is actually a description. We know that people do not, they do not get resurrected and go to the resurrection of life because they good, did good deeds. We know that, don't we? So we know it can't mean that. But only believers can do agathos, divine good, the good, of intrinsic value. So it is a label. It's a description of believers. Anyone who believes in Christ can do the good or the good things, which would be divine good because they have the Holy Spirit, filling of the Holy Spirit. So it's a, it's a, a label. And they're going to a resurrection of life. Now, what is that? That's one resurrection there. And those who committed the evil, and this is unfortunate, again, it says evil deeds. And both of those translations are unfortunate because the word, the key word there, this is phallos. Remember we looked at it? And phallos, has, it can mean uh, bad, it can, but the main description of it that fits here is worthless. Those who did the worthless. Now you can start to understand. It's not talking about bad things that they've done. It's talking about the worthless things that they did. And what is the worthless? Anytime someone is working to be righteous enough to be accepted by God is worthless. We call it human good. God hates human good. The only thing that he is impressed with is what he does through us. But if we're out there and we're trying to produce our own righteousness, in order to be accepted by him, we're going to see at the great white throne judgment where all unbelievers are going to be resurrected to, they are going to have all these things they're so proud of. And God is going to open the books. He's got, a, got them all listed. You think we have computers? What do you think God has? He hadn't missed a trick. He knows every thought, every good deed that anybody has ever done with the wrong motivation, trying to be accepted or blessed by God by what they do. And, of course, he's going to demonstrate and he's going to point out that this is all worthless with regards to getting into heaven. In fact, the very things that they are doing in order to be entered into heaven are the things that they're going to be indicted against. Now, hear this. This is where you can really understand this and maybe be able to explain it to someone else. Sin has already been taken care of on the cross. Sin is not going to be judged again because it was already judged on the cross. And yet there are at least two more judgments. There's other judgments, but two main ones that we have in view here. The first one we can look at is for believers. And we went to the Bema the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. And our works are going to be evaluated as to did we have the right motivation? Were we filled with the Holy Spirit? Were we depending upon the Lord in order to do these? And all the divine good that we do is going to be rewarded. It's an evaluation. 
of the works that we did. And there, there's another judgment yet coming for unbelievers. And even for unbelievers, this is what a lot of people cannot get their mind around. They, it's so ingrained in them that unbelievers go to hell for their sins that they can't, they just can't hardly understand that they are there because they are depending on the wrong thing. They bet on the wrong horse. They think it's their works. Getting ready for that last day, that judgment day. And they're going to be judged, what does it say, two times in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12? They were judged according to their works, their ergon, their deeds. And, of course, their deeds are lacking. So when you look at this, these two verses and you see, okay, this is the second resurrection. The second one is... Those who committed the evil deeds, no. Those who did the worthless, did the things that don't count, that are absolutely of no value whatsoever, they're going to uh, be resurrected to a resurrection of judgment. It's also called the great white throne, and there they'll have the second death. you see why that word worthless there really is key? It's... Those who do the intrinsic good, the divine good, which labels them as believers as opposed to those who do the worthless. See, sin isn't ever characterized as worthless. It may be worthless, but it's the deeds that are worthless. I had someone years ago, they were a Calvinist, and they, he was making a case that the people who are not elect are judged according to their sins because Christ didn't pay for their sins on the cross. I said, really? I said, that's pretty strange because when I read Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, it says that they're judged according to their works. He said, oh, yeah, but that's their bad works. I said, bad works? Where does it say bad? I don't see any bad in there. All I see is works. He said, well, it's understood that they're bad works and bad works are equivalent to sins. I said, well, you know, I've heard of dead works. I've heard of, of works that are unacceptable, but never heard of bad works. Now, someone might want to go to this verse and say, see, that's saying evil deeds, which is equivalent to sin. But I don't know what the word means at all. It doesn't even have the, the word deeds isn't even there. It's talking about they do that which is worthless because they are trying to work their way to heaven. And the Bible says the more you work to get into heaven, the deeper in debt you get. You want to keep the law? God says, okay. Remember what we looked just the other day about the law? The law is good. It's not bad, but it's really a curse to mankind. Because God says, if you want to keep the law, here it is. Six hundred and some odd rules to live by. And you've got to keep every one of them. And if you do pretty good, but you fall in one, the book of James says it's the same as if you're guilty of the whole thing. It's like if you go out here, especially out across from Tractor Supply, and you're speeding there, what's going to happen? You know, the guy's there. You know, half the time he's there. And so he pulls you over. He says, well, you're going a 75 and a, and a 60. You say, yeah, but you know what, officer? This is the first time I sped this whole week. All week I've been going 60 right here. 
I've stopped at every stop sign. I've done everything right down the line. I, but I just, I don't know, I just wasn't paying attention. Now I got up a little bit. So now, surely you're going to take that into consideration and let me go. What do you think he's going to say? <laughs> it's much harder to get out of a ticket with God than it is sheriff deputy. In fact, it's impossible. People don't realize this. I was in a parking lot yesterday. Some guys were looking for a way how to get to, to Lyons. And uh, anyway, uh, long story short is uh, uh, Pete was with me. We gave him the gospel. Uh, Pete asked him, what do you think you have to do to get to heaven? Oh, well, you have to be honest to yourself. And you have to live a, a, a good life. And so Pete jumped on that like a duck on a June bug. And he explained to him that the more you work, the more you go in debt. And Romans 4, 5. Remember four, Romans 4, 5? How many times have we said Romans 4, 5 and I see you all out there grimacing? Huh? <laughs> to the one who does not work, but what? Believes! <laughs> Believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. They got a few bucks from us, but they got something much more valuable. And that was typical. Most people outside these doors, you go out there, they buy into this idea, and you need to be able to nail this down. Because there's more than one judgment coming, isn't there? There's more than one resurrection coming, isn't there? And none of it has anything to do as far as which resurrection you're going to be in with your works. Did you hear that? I'm not saying works are unimportant. They're very important. But they have zilch to do with salvation. And this is the news that people need to hear. Let's see what else I have on here. I'll just scroll down through here. Oh, yeah, these are verses. <coughs> Remember people who think that they can do good, the good in order to be in the first resurrection? <coughs> Romans 8, 8. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Isaiah 64, 6. You know, all this coming unclean. Our righteous, all of our righteous deeds are like filthy garment and so forth. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and <coughs> who never sins. <coughs> well, either the Bible's lying or else nobody's got a chance of doing enough. And that's, that's the next thing I want to point out again. I've done this before. I'm going to do it again. You need to do it. Every time this issue comes up and somebody says, well, like the guy in the truck said, what do you have to do to go to heaven? You have to be honest with yourself. You have to live a good life. Okay. How honest? How good do you have to be? How many good works do you have to do in a day? Is there a quota? What's the quota? If my eternal destiny is based on a quota of doing good, how much good is it? And where is that in the Bible? Are y'all using this? You keep them engaged. You're asking them a question. And they can't, they can't go there. They cannot do it. How evil do my deeds have to be? How worthless 
Can I do anything at all that is a little bit better than something else that might be credited as righteous? What does the Bible say? No. Not one. Just said it. Indeed, there is not one righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. And what happens if he sins one time? Game's over. Just like the guy out there on the ticket, getting the ticket. Well, I've been good all this time. Look, look, look. It's just one little thing. Too bad. Ephesians 2, 9, uh, uh, 9 and 10. Actually, this is 2, 8, 9, and 10. I'm not even going to do that one because you all all know it. I suspect that you know it. You know, if you're talking to an unbeliever or a believer that doesn't know doctrine and you don't back it up with Scripture, you know all you're doing is giving your opinion? Why is your opinion any better than his opinion? I mean, everybody's got an opinion. If you just say, well, I think that it's going to be more than just a judgment there. I think there's going to be some, something about believers going to a place and at the end there's going to be something over there. The person says, oh, yeah, how do you know that? And you're thinking, I remember I, was that, I, I heard this on a tape. You've got to know it. You've got to be able to go there because the Word of God is alive and power, n- powerful, not your opinions. Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done and so forth. Okay, let's see. Let me get on down here where we were here. Uh, oh, this is the horrible. This I got out of a commentary. He's saying that this verse, these two verses, he says, verse 29 especially, he says, in this decisive hour, the division takes place will be based on people on, on what people have done. Because, listen to this, because that believing is often superficial, the integrity of believing is to be judged by a person's activity, not merely by what he says. Now, I'm not going to get my blood up like I did last time. You cannot tell if a person is saved by their behavior. What if I followed you around for a week with a clipboard? What if I saw you when you thought nobody was looking? And I took it all down. Hmm? I don't want anybody following me around with a clipboard. Of course, the people that know me better, they say, well, they're out there, amen. <laughs> if we ever got an amen, it would be for that. You do not have to prove that you are saved by your behavior. You are saved because you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Bible says that is it. In fact, if you try to add something to it, you didn't receive it as a gift. If you don't receive it as a gift, you don't get it because that's the only way that it is given. And so many people, do you know how many people are out there struggling? Am I really saved or am I not? If I just get out of this and get on with our Second Thessalonians, we've got, we're going to get to sanctification. I've got a real neat presentation on that to show you how people, they don't know what spirituality is. They don't, I've talked to people before. And I said, well, this is a person that didn't know anything about spirituality. 
I said, well, what about that? They thought that you had to live a righteous life. And if you were really righteous, then you could pretty well know that you were elect. But if you fall off the wagon, it's very possible you just thought you were saved. You had a head belief and not a heart belief. You didn't have enough faith. You didn't have the right kind of faith and all this baloney. And I said, well, what about, what about grieving the Holy Spirit? What? Yeah, what about quenching the Holy Spirit? What? Never even heard of the term. Didn't have a clue. I said, well, what about the sin unto death? What? That's most people. You understand that. They don't know what spirituality is. And so I'm so glad that we don't ever have to struggle with that. When we fall, we get out of fellowship with God, but we have His righteousness. We have eternal life. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All these things are what? Irrevocable. It's impossible for God to take them back. And there is not one illustration from the Genesis to Revelation of anybody losing their eternal life or their righteousness, God's righteousness. I challenged the Jehovah Witness on that. I said, can a person lose their salvation? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I said, where? Yeah, I told you about this. He goes to the verse about Alexander and Hymenaeus. Uh, Paul turned them over for, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I said, you know what? I don't see salvation. I don't see hell. I don't see anything that has to do with them losing anything. They were just being disciplined because they were being brats. Paul turned them over. You need to get right. Nothing about them losing. And he knew it. I saw it in his eyes. These two verses, Galatians 2.16, three times. You don't have many verses that the same thing is repeated three times in one verse. I have it in red. Look at it. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, one, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed Christ Jesus that we may be justified uh, in, uh, in, in Christ and not by, work, by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. That's two. Since by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. That's three times. People who think they have to be baptized to be saved. They're working. And it's not by the works of the law. It's by faith. Why did Paul say, God did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel? If you have to be water baptized... To be saved, was Paul on marijuana? Was he, what do they call it, dipping acid? No, uh, no, they call it uh, something acid. Uh, tripping, tripping acid, there you go. <laughs> See, a lot of people knew they just didn't want to say it. They knew what it was. Galatians three twenty four through 26. Therefore the law has been our tutor teaching us that we cannot keep the law to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are sons, huihas, adult sons, positionally, legally. Sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Well, I just got to get on down here. Uh, let's see. Here's the, the resurrections. The Bible speaks of three future resurrections. The first one is, of course, the next one on the agenda, which is for us. Whereas uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 
5, uh, 15 verse 23 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all believers shall be made, <coughs> shall be made, what is that? Alive. Shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Christ is already in heaven, a resurrection body, the only one in all the universe ever that ever had a resurrection body is Jesus Christ. He's the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at His coming, but it's coming in stages. First, there's going to be the church age believers at the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Old Testament believers and tribulational believers at the second advent, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And there's a couple other verses that I, I, could, I could add to that, but I couldn't find them. Unbelievers are going to be resurrected at the great white throne judgment. We went through all that. Um, hmm. Here we are at our verse right here. This is the music I was going to play the very last day to you. I got it on the deal. But I'm just not in the mood. It's a fast song. What? Yeah, I just need to reduce the, the, uh, I think I'm on full screen. Yeah, I'm on full screen now. I need to go to view and see if I can go to zoom and we'll go to, let's go to 100 and see what happens. Uh-oh. Well, it's all there, but you can't see it as well. Can, they, can everybody see that? If I could, oh, here it is. This is what I was looking for. Let me get up to about, I've done this before. I can get up to about 120% here. Let's go 125. Oh, no, that's all right. It's all in there, isn't it? No? I need more advisors. Let's see. Let's go to then. We'll delete this and go to one and call it good. Okay. So here we are. <clears throat> now, I'm done with John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, but I thought that was very important for you to get those principles down because most people believe the most fundamental basic lie from satan and that is one judgment based on good and bad okay let's turn our bibles now to second thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 and we've got verse actually verse 13 and 14 because that's one sentence i always go to the greek and i give you the sentence as it is in the greek some you know english versions chop it up but a, a sentence is a basic unit of thought, so we stick with that. Here it is. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in truth. And it was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot there. We'll break it down piece at a time. First of all, it says, but we should always give thanks to God for you. 
Paul said this for the second time in this epistle. The first time was in uh, chapter 1, verse 3, just a chapter earlier. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you towards one another grows ever greater. Now, why do you think, maybe I shouldn't say why, what is it that made their faith enlarged? And what is it that made them love grow even greater towards one another? What is it? What did it? Do you think it might be that they were growing in the Word? How does faith grow? If I went out there and I was going to set the record for good deeds in one day, and I did 2,736 good deeds, how much did my faith enlarge? Did that enlarge, enlarge my faith? I don't know any more than I did before. In fact, I think my faith would be less. Because if I was going to be doing good deeds, it would be towards people. And if I met that many people in one day and had to deal with them, I would probably be out of fellowship. I'd probably be rebounding all day. I wouldn't have time to be thinking about faith in God. I'd be thinking about how many people I wanted to cut their throats. Now, I'm telling you like it is. I don't know, 2,736 good deeds? How many people you have to run into to do that? How many of them are going to be thankful? How many of them are going to be nasty to you? Well, anyway, you got the point. The reason that their faith was enlarged is because when Paul left, they didn't put their notebooks up on a shelf and say, well, that's that. They didn't say, well, that's all, there, that's all we need. We're going to heaven. We have eternal security. We don't need to study anymore. We'll just go on our merry way. That didn't happen. The only way that their faith was greatly enlarged is that they continued to study. They no doubt had someone there, pastors or pastor, that continued to teach the Word. And so that's how they grew. And as your faith enlarged, your capacity to love enlarged towards God, and it's our relationship with God that gives us the capacity to love others. You can't just make a commitment someday and say, well, I want to be more liked by people, and I'm going to be nicer to people, so I'm going to make a commitment. I'm going to love people more. You know how long that's going to last? Until you get on the highway or in traffic. I don't know, maybe you all are wired different than me, but when I get in traffic, my wife is back there. <laughs> In that verse, he was grateful that their faith had grown as well as their love for one another, while in this verse, he is directing his gratitude more in God's direction than the Thessalonians. See, in verse 3, verse, chapter 1, verse 3, he was thanking God for the brethren. He was, he was directing his love more towards the, and his gratitude more towards the, the brethren. But now, in our verse... What does he say? But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because of what God chose, because of what God is doing. He's directing his love and his thanksgiving now more towards God than he was in verse 3 that was directed towards the people. 
Paul was always thanking God for his fellow believers. Look at this. 1 Corinthians 1, 4. I thank God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, he's talking to fellow believers. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. You got two alls in there. All, well, you got always and an all. That covers a lot of territory. He does it all the time. Just, just slow down and let's look at that for just one second. Do you think that the people that Paul came in contact, the Thessalonians, that they always deserved his gratitude and his love? Always? Do you think all of them did? Listen, the bigger the group, the bigger the stinker. There's always at least one. And the bigger the group, the more stinkers there are. And then he says, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Here again, we, see, we are reminded of Paul's enduring love towards his fellow believers and the affectionate love of the Lord towards them as well. He loved the Thessalonian believers. And I'm wondering, how, how often do you thank the Lord for your brothers and sisters in the Lord, this church family, people that you are so close to? And the reason you are close to them is because they are like-minded. They are positive. They love the Lord. They love the Word. And that is a bond stronger than blood. And how often do you thank God for them? I know of families. I know of people that feel like they're out in the Sahara Desert somewhere. They're, they're in communities. Nobody. Their neighbors, nobody around them. Friends, they, don't, they change the subject. They don't want to know about the Word. They don't want to talk about the Lord. They, have, they don't have a group like this that they can just revel in their camaraderie, that esprit de corps, that closeness, that bond, that love. And we, we, including me, take that for granted. Paul didn't. He continued to thank the Lord for him. He said, uh-oh, now we're getting into deep water right off the bat here. Because God has chosen you from the beginning. That's enough to set off bells and whistles for some people. These, chosen, by the way, is a buzzword. Like elect, called, predestined, chosen. Because God has chosen you from the beginning. Before I get into that, let's, let's look at the next phrase. For salvation. Uh-oh. Got to do a little work here, don't we? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. You see how close that is to what we see here? Blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, just as he chose us in him. Okay, I have a quote here from Through the Bible with J. Vernon McGee. And this is what J. Vernon says. Whoever will, this is a quote, whoever will, whoever will may come, 
the whoever wills are the chosen ones, and the whoever wants are the non-elect. That's pretty simple. Jesus said, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink, John 7, 37. That is a legitimate offer of salvation, a sincere, definite offer with no complications attached. If you don't come, the reason is not because you are not elected, not at all. The reason you don't come is that you are not thirsty. That is, you don't think you need a Savior. Now, how many people fit that category? There are not many thirsty people out there. And you know why? Because most of them have bought wholesale, hook, line, and sinker, the lie that they need to prepare themselves for the judgment day, that last day, and I better be good. And everybody accepts that. Way back when Peter, Paul, and Mary came out with this, the very last day, this song, and made this, I didn't have any doctrine then. I thought, man, that's a neat song. I like the, it's, it's a real fast song. Well, I might, I might play it after all. <laughs> it's a neat song. I never pay any, any attention to the lyrics. But it's talking about the very last day. And that's why they are not thirsty. And the religious crowd, the churchgoers, are the hardest, absolute hardest nut to crack. They spent their entire life building what Paul said is a big pile of dung. Everything that meant anything to Paul, any of the accomplishments that he made, he looked upon as manure as opposed to having Jesus Christ and understanding grace. So, we also have looked at this. We've been over this. I'm not going to throw my anchor out here because we've been over it so many times. But just remember, that word elect is a technical word and it is used for believers only. God did not elect, choose, or draw anybody into hell. It's not there. You were chosen because God is omniscient. In His foreknowledge, He knew that you were going to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you were predestined, you were foreordained, you were called, you were chosen based on that. Nothing of yourself. Christ was elected in eternity past according to Isaiah 42.1. Election for the believer means to share the election of Christ and the de uh, destiny of Christ. What did we go over Sunday? What was the last thing you saw on the board that was in great big red letters? Do you remember? Two words. In Christ. That's a big deal in the Bible. You see it everywhere. And so... We share Christ's destiny because we are in Christ. We have a resurrection body that is like Christ because we are in Christ. We're going to spend eternity, wherever Christ goes, we're going to be with Him because we are uniquely, we are intimately, permanently united to Jesus Christ. And that means everything. And how did that come about? From the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it had nothing to do with water. Remember Sunday? 
Jesus Christ was elected, as it were, first because he was commissioned to be a royal high priest. Therefore, he was elected, and as members of the body of Christ in the church age, we share in that election as well as in that royal priesthood. We're elected because we're in Christ, and Christ was elected. We're royal priests because we're in Christ, and Christ is a royal priest. Only Christ is the high priest. Okay, then we have this word here, for salvation, soteria. This is the uh, noun, the accusative singular feminine. As we've gone over in the past, this word at times is used for eternal salvation and at other times for temporal deliverance. Sometimes it can mean both as it does in this verse. You know what I'm talking about when I say something is salvific. It means it's talking about eternal salvation. And the problem is sozo, which means saved, and soteria, which means salvation, both are buzzwords, just like baptism is buzzword. What I'm talking about is when you say it or when someone reads it, automatically what flashes in their mind is what they've always believed it is. If you see baptism, what do they think? Water. They see saved, what do they think? Heaven. But more times than not, when this word soteria is used in the New Testament, it's not talking about saved going to heaven. It's talking about being delivered in a temporal sense. I could go on with that, but this is going to explain it even more. Let's look at, get the whole picture here. Because God has chosen you, that was who Paul was writing to, from the beginning. By the way, from the beginning doesn't mean from the beginning of Christ's ministry or anything. It's talking about in eternity past, before the beginning. The beginning before the beginning, before there was ever universe, anything. God had already chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Holy Spirit. Now, this word sanctification is a theological term. And believe it or not, I have the kids. I can say sanctification. I can say regeneration. And they spit right back at me what that means. If I say sanctification, they say separated unto God. I say regeneration, they say born again. They're not just words. They're meaningful to them. So through the sanctification by the Spirit, and sanctification here is hagiosmos, that's H-A-G-I-O-S-M-O-S. It's a noun, dative, singular, masculine, and it means to sanctify, sanctification, sometimes translated holiness. It means separation unto God. And there are two kinds of sanctification. And if you don't get this, if you don't understand the two different types of sanctification, you'll never understand spirituality. You will remain a kindergarten believer and you will be probably doubting whether you're really saved or not. You won't even have eternal security down. Here's the two right here. First of all, we have positional or legal sanctification. I've, I've used the word so many times, positional. And then someone was, I don't remember who I was talking, I wasn't talking to them, I was listening on the radio or on the Internet somewhere, and they were talking about a positional sense, and then they said, uh, and, and it's a legal sense. And I thought, oh, well, that, 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 that communicates in a legal sense. If you have... A wife, and she is your bride, and you know her, 
then positionally she is part of you. Sometimes we joke and say, she's my better half. And that's pretty neat because they are part of you. In a positional sense, it's strange that, uh, it's not strange, but I think when a woman marries a man, she takes on his name. Uh, Carrie's name before we were married was Mailer, but she married me. Now she is a Smith. She wasn't born a Smith, but you could say positionally or legally, she is a Smith. And that's why it is when we're talking about this positional or legal sanctification, our standing before God is a legal issue. It's a positional issue. It doesn't have anything to do with what our behavior is. There are people who don't even like their parents. They are estranged. There are people who don't even know their parents, but legally they are still the parent's child, and they carry that name. And that's, that's kind of what we're talking about here with regards to positional or legal standing before God. Every believer is permanently set apart to God at the moment they believe in Jesus Christ. Nothing can change that. For some of you, you realize when I say that's part of the top circle. You say, bingo, I know it. I, I can close my eyes. Top circle, bottom circle, cross, carnality, got it. But the problem is that some people think that's the only kind there is. And the great overwhelming amount of time that sanctification is used, just like the great overwhelming part of the time that sozo or soteria is used, talking about being saved or salvation, is not in a positional or legal sense. Most of the time it's this other sense which is called experiential sanctification. And experiential sanctification means some believers grow in grace and knowledge and are set apart by God for special rewards and blessings. You see, that's why people think that they lose their salvation or they think you maybe have lost your salvation because they don't understand the difference between these two. They think everything is positional or everything is legal. They don't understand the imputed righteousness, imputed eternal life, and all the things that God does that is permanent. The baptism of the Holy Spirit that puts you in Christ, nothing can change that. They don't understand any of those things. So when they do something that is surprisingly evil or wrong in their own estimation, they start thinking, well, am I truly elect? Am I really saved? I mean, after all, uh, maybe I've lost my standing before God. Isn't it great to know? We cannot. It is absolutely impossible to lose our standing in Christ before God. Even he can't change that. He's omnipotent, but he can't change his own, his own plan, his own design. Experiential sanctification. And what I'm showing you when it says here that because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit... We're, we're seeing that this can, this can apply to both. Did God choose us in eternity past in a legal, positional sense to be conformed to the image of His Son? 
and to reap great blessings. Did, we, did he or did he not? Yes, in a, in a legal sense, in a salvific sense, that is true because of his foreknowledge. I could go to Romans chapter 8, verse 8 and following, go down that, or Ephesians chapter 1, it gives the lowdown there. But it also means that in eternity past, he chose us to be saved or delivered from the ruler of this world and from the cosmic system and from all the crap that is going on every day around us and we don't get sucked into it. He chose us to be delivered from that through sanctification, but it's not talking about positional sanctification. It's talking about experiential sanctification. He wants every one of us to experientially, in time, be set apart for special blessings. We call that super grace blessings. And the average Christian doesn't even have a clue what that is. Super grace blessings, what's that? So it can mean both of them. And I'd like to expand on that, but the time is gone. And we will continue this next time. Let's close. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us these great truths. We're so thankful that our evaluation before you, in fact, even being at the judgment seat of Christ, being saved, having eternal life, all this is because of your grace. And now it's an issue of whether we want to be closer to you, that we want a real relationship with you, we want to depend upon you, trust you, so that we can be experientially sanctified, both reap the rewards here and now, as well as for all eternity. So easy to lose that focus. There's so much going on. We pray that you will help us to keep it in focus as if it was a laser. We won't lose track of what is really important in this life. That you will help us to keep our minds right with regards to who you are and what you, what you expect of us. And you give us the power to achieve it. We thank you for this and pray it all in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.